I do not have a soft voice. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of tough. A writer is a sponge. We soak up life around us, both good and bad, and it's interesting that today is the day I'm talking about this after the tragedy in Virginia because that terrible incident will affect other people the way what I'm going to talk about affected me. Every writer puts a little bit of themselves into everything they write. On September 11, 2001, I was among many Americans who sat in front of their television screen and watched the second plane smash into the trade towers and then watched another one plow into the Pentagon and yet another one dive nose first into the ground. Ordinarily, I'm at my desk at 8.45 in the morning, but for some reason that morning, I wanted to know what the weather was going to bring. I spent the day in front of the television. I watched the events play out. I watched Peter Jennings' tears. I watched our world change forever. Over the following weeks, I cried two or three times a day. I couldn't look at a newspaper, and I had to leave the room when the news came on. I couldn't do anything constructive, let alone creative. I felt drained of all my positive energy. Post-traumatic syndrome is real. Eventually, after many, many months, life settled back into some semblance of normalcy, and I wanted to write again. No, I had to write again. I had to write this book. As I wrote, or rather the story wrote itself, it gave me an avenue of release. My inner experience with 9-11 came through in my story, and there was nothing I could do to take it out. I was able to voice what I felt, take my feelings and examine them through my characters. I was able to walk in someone else's shoes and view the despicable acts from a safe place. What would you do if the enemy turned up on your doorstep? I'm going to stand up because I think I can. The story opens with a Middle Eastern girl who wants to take writing lessons at Jessica Rader's writing stables. Jessica stared, momentarily stunned by the exotic woman standing in the doorway, skin the color of a cinnamon latte, a serene expression, large dark eyes fringed with long black eyelashes. A pale yellow scarf covered her head, the ends draped over one shoulder and secured with a gold pin. An equally lovely young girl pressed against the woman's side and just formed a mental image of the two, wrapped in silk and flowing chiffon, silhouetted against an ancient pyramid, so out of place in a horse barn. Now Jess's partner, Faith, is not quite so charitable. A shadow changed Faith's delicate features. I'm kind of sorry I met them. I never dreamed they'd really show up for lessons. I feel creepy having foreigners hanging around here, especially Arabs. Come on, that's not fair. You're judging them because they look different than us. Well, ever since 9-11, no, I don't want to hear that stuff. I don't, don't think I miss.
resist your attempts to discourage them. We're in financial trouble, and their money's as good as anybody else, so get over it. In the sudden quiet, Jess considered the essence of the brief disagreement. Both she and Faith had grown up in the melting pot of New England and never gave a second thought to the diverse mix of people in the region. Though the devastating attacks on America had thoroughly shaken them both, with time, Jess had moved back into the familiar security of everyday life. Apparently, Faith had not. One of the hardest things I had to do was think about my personal friends in the Middle East, Egyptian men and women who were the kindest and most loving people I'd ever met. Now, to the world, they wore the face of the enemy. How could I honor these people I knew to be innocent, yet not turn a blind eye to the ones who weren't? Terrorism was now a fact of life here at home, and anyone could identify with its very real presence. The young student's father brings yet another facet to the cast of characters. Samir Mafood removed the wrapper from a plump cigar and inhaled the heady aroma of fine tobacco. As he performed the comforting ritual of preparing to smoke, the low voices of his companions mingled with the conversations of other cafe customers and the muted background noise of the casino. A stocky man with a neatly trimmed beard tapped the ash off a cigarette. Samir, your business is doing well? Yes, I am waiting for a shipment from Egypt. Beautiful carpets. This week, inshallah. Samir smiled, watching the first satisfying plume of smoke curl away from the glowing tip of the cigar as he listened to his friends. They were so easily entertained by the ordinary things that men around the world discussed whenever they were gathered together. As usual, the conversation eventually turned to the latest unrest in the Middle East, and his pulse quickened. Another triumph for Allah was in the wind. He could feel it. The tone of the discussion changed abruptly, became sharp and angry, bringing his attention back to the group. His friends peered intently at a television newscaster whose earnest voice sent a chill of anger racing through Samir's chest. Racial profiling took a new and frightening step this week. In Boston, Ahmed Massawi, a U.S. citizen, was informed that his bank account had been closed, leaving him with no access to the funds. Other banks are following suit a questionable decision based on the FBI's attempts to stop the flow of money to terrorist groups, both here and abroad. The outraged rumblings of Samir's companions further incensed him, but he remained silent. Since the attacks in New York, the shadow of discrimination hovered over his countrymen, his friends, his family. What did it matter that he'd lived in America for almost 20 years, been a good citizen, a hardworking businessman? These, are, these scenes were all based on actual news things that, were, that went on. And, you know, I mean, this Ahmed Massawi, this really happened, and it ended up in the story. <laughs> now Jess is beginning to become, feel a little uncomfortable around these people. Jess headed towards Zeta and her daughter. Dania, you did a great job. The girl responded with a dazzling smile. Thank you. I cannot wait to have my own horse. I know I will be able to ride much better. Her mother laughed and said, yes, it was the same when I was a young girl. Jess couldn't hide her surprise. You ride? 
Yes, I learned when I was younger than Dania. I attended a private school <laughs> where they had a fine stable of beautiful horses. Do you still ride? A veil dropped over the woman's eyes and her tone cooled. No, I am a married woman now. But you're in America. You can do any damn thing you want to. The woman's expression sent a chill across Jess's shoulders. Miss Rader, America is your country, not mine. She turned to his daughter, her daughter and said, go change your clothes. Here comes Papa. As the story moves on, and I'm not going to tell you what it's about, <clears throat> but these two women get into real deep stuff, and they have to do something about it. And that was, of course, me wanting to do something about it. Through it all, Jess learns that the tragedy of 9-11 has touched every life, including her new love interest. She tilted her head and met his ever-startling blue gaze. I know almost nothing about you. You're such a master at focusing all conversations on me. Lawyer ploys, trick of the trade. Okay, so now I'm cross-examining. When did you retire? Why so early? Whoa, you sound like one of the Phoebes. Just stick to the facts, Mr. London. I left the practice exactly four years ago this November. Someone was looking out for me. Our offices were right next to the trade towers. Oh, my God. Did you have partners? Yes, but they were both at a convention in Miami, but a paralegal and a secretary were badly injured. I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have asked. No, it's one of those things every New Yorker carries with him in every fiber. The memory will never go away, but time takes the edge off the pain. Every time I visit the city, I feel so out of place. Every cab driver... Newsboy, hot dog vendor, seems to be a dark foreigner. Are they friend or foe? I watch the throngs of people flowing up and down the sidewalks, inhabitants of a city deeply scarred with pain, citizens who've resumed their former lives, but with broken hearts. I can't even look at the skyline knowing what I won't see. The best part of writing this book was the ability to do something about this horrible situation that was inside me. I was able to write the book and get some revenge. And it's a mystery, right? It's a mystery? Well, it's a thriller. <laughs> it's not a mystery. It's a thriller. Um, I, I could end the book in a way that satisfied me so that I could believe that someday, somehow, all these wrongs would be righted. There's been a lot of talk in, in the writing circles lately about using real life to generate ideas for stories. I think using your reactions to real life has far more value. For me, it was therapy for my soul. If anybody has any questions, I have lots of answers. <laughs> you want to do questions next? However you, 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 however you do this. I, how do you do this? I think it's real informal. Okay, well, I'm informal. Whatever. So you guys want some more reading before you talk? <laughs> Look at there. Took me three years. I started it in uh, May 2002. <laughs> Coming back from Connecticut, uh, my husband and I were talking about it, and I said, I have to do this. And, we plot.
plotted so fast and furiously that we ran out of gas. Uh, it was that's when I started it, and it was published in um, August August of 2005. So. Oh yeah. Yes, I, I guess I should tell you. The whole thing takes place <laughs> on a big hunter-jumper farm. Um, and I, like I said, these women are having some financial problems, and they make a couple of wrong decisions because of the financial problems, and the next thing they know, they have much bigger problems. Uh, the back says, <clears throat> to lifelong friends Jessica Rader and Faith Angelo, Eastern Ridge Equestrian Center is more than a successful business. It's a dream come true. When a series of tough breaks threaten disaster, Faith's tragic past surfaces, and the friendship falters as the women struggle to keep the wolf from the barn door. Without knowing it, Jess lets him in and is faced with the fight of her life. And, of course, the wolf is Samir. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> so. Okay, two of you guys don't have these. <laughs> okay, you don't have one either. Can you pass that back behind you? Okay. Now, let's see. I was thinking about turning this on. Okay, I hope there's not any. Yeah, you really, uh, in order to get over what's going on over there, you really have to. Is it coming out? I'm ready for a drink. There? <clears throat> okay, well, the scoop is I hate my voice, so I hope you guys don't mind it. We'll do it sort of like this. This will keep me from looking at y'all because I'm shy. Um, <laughs> she is shy. Oh, yeah. I'm not real shy, but I'm shy reading out loud because I have a very nasal voice. My book is, is probably the opposite of her book. It's um, is funny. It's a comic um, romantic suspense, and it is set in a sex club, so it's very hard R. So if any of y'all are under, like, 18, you should leave right now. <laughs> Actually, I found one scene I could read that doesn't have any sex in it. There's a funeral scene I could read. But um, anyway, I'll tell you the basic premise of this is I lived in D.C. for 20 years. And I thought, what if the FBI, the DEA, and the D.C. police put – agents undercover at the same sex club but didn't tell each other. <laughs> so there's like four normal people in this kinky sex club, and of course they have to find each other. I mean, it's just, but they each think the other is some kinky weirdo that's at a sex club, but it all ends up happy. And the, um, the main hero is a D.C. cop, and he's all broken up because his partner's been killed at the sex club. So he's gone undercover as a submissive guy, and he's totally an alpha male, and he's acting submissive, and he's in, in this sex club. And the heroine is a DEA agent, a female, who's undercover as a dominatrix. See, you, you didn't know what you were getting into when you <laughs> And the, um, the secondary heroine, that's who I'm going to read about, is a D.C. police woman who is undercover as a massage person at this <laughs> she, you haven't read my book, have you? No. <laughs> massage. massage, yeah, she does massage. 
And she was trained on an anatomically correct blow-up doll, which figures in the scene because she has him sitting at his like at her kitchen table. So <laughs> I tried to find a scene without like swear words and stuff. Ah, oh, well you anyway. can just bleep them. <laughs> Well, the secondary hero that she has a crush on is this guy that comes in for massages, straight massages, no happy endings, if you know what that means. And um, <laughs> and <laughs> I know, it's embarrassing. I wrote it, but it's embarrassing. Anyway, so what happens is he's a widower, and he's never gotten on with his life. His wife died like three years before. And so this policewoman decides that she's going to use a mix of aromatherapy and um, – deep muscle massage to get him to open up and she's trying to talk him into getting on with his life and she really has no right to do it and he doesn't take it very well and they almost kiss but they don't kiss unfortunately and so this is when she gets home after that scene it was close to midnight when Susie unlocked the front door to her apartment she barely remembered the drive from the club to her eclectic Adams Morgan community thanks to the abundance of popular ethnic restaurants in her DC neighborhood she had been forced to park several blocks from her building. The brisk walk hadn't cleared her head, however, and her mind was still replaying the memory of her near kiss with Calvin. Opening the door, she walked into her apartment, closed the door behind her, and threw the deadbolt. Out of habit, she dropped her keys into the outstretched hands of the stone garden gnome that served as her foyer table. A friend had once described Susie's decorating as flea market chic, but tonight her colorful hodgepodge of treasures failed to make her smile. Is this like blasting out y'all's ears? Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, turning left, she walked into her kitchen and snapped on the overhead fluorescent light. The soft glow reflected off the stainless steel appliances that complemented her retro red and silver decor. Seated at her 1950s Formica and Chrome kitchen table, was the inflatable male doll that Lottie had given her during her masseuse and training session. Susie had dressed the anatomically correct doll in a pair of old sweats, but his hard plastic Johnson tinted the jersey material. That's the, that's the worst it gets, okay. Um, <laughs> so, um, well, at least you're happy to see me, Susie grumbled as she opened the fridge. After a cursory examination of its paltry contents, she chose a tropical fruit drink. Twisting off the lid and flipping it into the steel trash can in the corner, she sat down across from her lifeless roommate. How was your day, Dick? She asked the doll in a sweet, <laughs> sweet sing-song voice. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is, this is one of the cleanest <laughs> Don't I apologize. It's cute. Just okay. Read. <laughs> when Susie had named the inflatable man, the multi-use nickname for Richard had seemed an obvious choice. Nothing to report? Well, why don't I tell you about my day then? Susie took a long swig of fruit juice and settled back in her chair. Dick's frozen smile seemed encouraging. Well, a number of interesting clients came in for massages, including a judge who would have recognized me from that homicide case last fall if he had bothered to look any higher than my breasts. Susie paused to take another swallow of the sweet liquid before continuing. Dick, like a good listener, remained silent. Then I did a little snooping around the club and found out a few things I need to tell Dalton. She glanced at the Elvis wall clock and wondered if Dalton were still awake. Oh, and then my favorite customer arrived, the one I told you about. This is Calvin, the FBI guy, but she doesn't know he's FBI. 
Susie thought about the session with Calvin from her choosing the jasmine spray to their argument and unintentional embrace. The man attracted her and touched her heart. She deliberately used deep muscle massage, hoping to loosen his tongue and reduce his inhibitions. What right did she have to ask him about his wife, much less pressure him to move on with his life? Groaning, bone-tired, and filled with self-disgust, Susie lay her forehead on the table's cool formica. Wouldn't her parents be proud if they knew she was hitting on a troubled widower in what amounted to a high-priced massage parlor? She sat up straight and chugged the rest of the fruit juice. Setting the bottle down with a decisive clink, Susie met Dick's dull, vacant eyes across the table. When, <laughs> when Jason's killers are behind bars, I'm booking a vacation at one of those singles resorts in the Caribbean, she said. I'd let the air out of you and take me with you, I mean, take, me, take you with me, but those airport baggage checks are just a little too thorough these days. To her tired gaze, it seemed as if Dick's perennially happy expression dimmed. But I'll send you a postcard. Yep, she was going on a much-needed vacation. For two weeks, she'd lounge on the beach, sipping rung drinks delivered by muscular, mocha-skinned islanders with charcoal eyes and mile-wide smiles. But when she tried to imagine the scene, it was Calvin she saw in tropical print shirt and khaki shorts. Let's see, so, well, I'll finish reading it, sorry. I feel like I'm taking too much time. Okay, I'll read this. The another 40 minutes. <laughs> I, okay, okay. The shrill ringing of her cell phone made Susie jump. Snatching the phone out of her pocket, she answered with a breathless hello. Susie, did I wake you? Dalton sounded concerned. Dalton's the alpha male cop that's also there undercover. No, no, just a long day, she reassured him. Listen, it's late. Why don't we talk tomorrow? Sure, she agreed. Sunday was her day off, and she had some things she needed to discuss with him, too. Want to meet me for lunch? Okay, how about Goldie's at noon? She knew the popular Maryland Deli would be hopping on a Sunday, and they'd blend in with the crowd. Goldie's would be great, and try to get some sleep, okay? You sound a little ragged. Sure, Mom, he teased, but she could hear the fatigue in his voice. You too. Susie's mouth quirked as she disconnected. She might be a loser in the romance department, but she definitely had some good friends. Pushing back her chair, she stood and looked at the doll that shared her kitchen. Sorry, Dick, you might be built for speed, several variable speeds according to your instruction booklet, but I'm saving myself for the real thing. Turning off the kitchen light, she headed for her bedroom. Hopefully, she'd sleep deeply, so deeply that she'd stop reliving her client's aborted kiss like some love-struck adolescent. There'd be time for a rich fantasy life and maybe even a flesh-and-blood man after they called, caught Jason's killers. But try as she might, Susie couldn't help hoping that man would be Calvin. That's on, yay! <laughs> so, all right. So, no, I do, I've never been to a sex club. Is that your first question? <laughs> this guy comes in late going, what is she saying that for? <laughs> so... Um, my husband does get an incredible amount of grief from his coworkers since I wrote this book. And I put on my website that he helps me to research the love scenes. And so that increased the grief he gets at work. But um, some of them, I think, I don't know what they think. I, I had an agent once that eventually turned me down. She didn't offer representation. But she did ask me if I was a dominatrix in real life. <laughs> <laughs> 
which was pretty funny. But <laughs> did you? It was Roberta Brown. <laughs> yes. Okay. Patricia's agent. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I, I do get a lot of questions about how I do my research. So pretty much internet. You can get anything from the internet. That's the truth. There's a place down on um, it's West Fifth and High called the Garden. Does anybody know that place? And there's a place that's. <laughs> I'm not from here. I don't know it. <laughs> it's it's got it's a it's a sex toy shop and stuff like that. It has ah, lots of DVDs and stuff. I see. But there are sister stores like one one store down called the guard no the guard no the chamber the chamber thank you <laughs> see a see, secret light so <laughs> anyway <laughs> so I walked into the um, the chamber because there's a there's a device in here called the um, gates of hell which I will not under duress even describe what this thing is but I wanted to see it because I had heard about it so I walk in they kind of looked at me like what are you doing here you know because all black leather and restraints and everything and so I said, well, do you have the gates of hell? And suddenly we were best friends. Like, oh, yeah, I've got several signs. And they start bringing these things out. It's like, oh, God, it was like the password you know, to get me into the store. So um, it's, it's interesting researching something like this. But I figured most of the stuff that's in here, except for the sex scenes, is on CSI or Law and, Law and Order, plushies and dominatrixes and all this and so I think, it, I think there's a lot of people out there that are not kinky that like to read about it. So I think I fill a gap. That's, that's one of the books. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of fun, actually. My, my father's not too thrilled that I wrote this book. But I figured I'm 52. I get you the, told him? <laughs> my mother read it and told him about it. He's like, that sounded disgusting. That was dumb. I know. Well, you know, I said I'm 50. I think I've had sex by now. So, you know, it'd be different if, you know, I wasn't married, but, you know. Anyway, it, does anyone have any questions? Or I'll just ramble for another 40 minutes. Yeah. So. <laughs> she will. I will. Believe me, ask her some questions. <laughs> so. Here you go. Actually, you know, I, one of, the, one of the things now that's really big among authors and everybody is blogging. And, and our, my critique partner, who was here a couple months ago, I guess, um, she, on her blog, she had, you know, who would you cast for your book? Oh, I saw it. In, did you see? I didn't get there. Yeah. I yeah. So I, I had to really think, because my problem is that I, I lust after age-appropriate guys. I mean, you know, people are like, oh, did you see this real cute guy on Lost? And I'm like... He's, he's 19. Like, I know exactly. I'm like, eh. You know, so I'm like more into like Hugh Jackman. He's still younger than me. But yeah. so I was trying to think of somebody, and I decided um, Brendan Fraser because he's got the body for it, and I think he could play like he was submissive even though he's – I don't think he would be. So he would be my hero, and my heroine would be um, Catherine Zeta-Jones. That would be my dream casting. And Susie actually is Korean American, and and Calvin's black. So I don't know who I would choose for them. I didn't go that far. Well, my attorney guy in here that she hooks up with—that's Sam Elliott. Sam Elliott. There you <laughs> go. I, I had a picture of him up there while I was writing it because that's who I saw in my mm -hmm. head. Um, that's who he was. Yeah, it's nice to have a hero prototype file. <laughs> so. I do. I have to, yes. I can't write about faceless people. Are you character-driven? Yes. See. Well, but I, I, I always end up with a plot that just, you know, 
just really is huge. That's I've done that now three times. <laughs> My plot just, but I, I start out really developing characters, and they're always bits and pieces of people I've known. You know, I mean, no one character is a person I've known, but there is something of a person I've known in that character. And I think a lot of um, fiction writers are divided pretty evenly between plot-driven authors and character-driven authors. Mm -hmm. And the character-driven authors are usually the books that you read and actually keep on your shelf, the keepers. Right. The plot-driven, like me, you read it and think, this is cool, give it to somebody else to read. You don't keep it. Yeah. Because I think yeah, you're I mean, not you as involved. Read this, I mean, you could read it again, but once you've read it, you know everything that's in it, and you know, I mean, you'd have to you'd have to let 20 years go by and hope you forgot something. It's like I can't ever watch a movie twice. Well, yeah, some of them I, I don't can. do that much either. But uh, but but usually the character I envy character-driven authors. I'm plot-driven, so I have to really fight to. So that's why I do have pictures. Like I have on my two speakers, I have a picture of this really cute guy. I don't know who he is. He's a model for my current work in progress. And I had, um, I, I forget her name, some actress, but she really didn't fit the part. So I, now I'm like, I have to, I have to have a, you know what dual, dual document editing is? So I have a document open behind my manuscript where I've got the descriptions of my heroes and, and what they drive, what they wear, what they eat, and all this. And so I'll be writing and I'll think, shit, excuse me, does it have, um, <laughs> does she have like green eyes or blue? Yeah. And I have to go over eyes and I have are to a real look. problem. Yeah, and I have to look to go, so I don't have a continuity problem in the book. And, you know, I had, at one point I had, this guy had a, he was driving a Jeep Cherokee, and in one scene it was black, and another scene it was green, Hunter Green, I think. I have trouble with hair in one of mine. Yeah. And I changed a, I changed a character's name. <laughs> yeah, that missed one of them in the book, and one of my advanced readers goes, "Who's Eve?" And I went, "She's from another book." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had I spelled um, a secondary hero, um, a secondary character's last name, two different ways in this book, and my editor caught it. That's I didn't, what editors are for. Yeah, I didn't I didn't catch it. So it's it's tricky. I mean, this book. If it wasn't a, our, both of ours are considered trade paperbacks. They're a little bit taller, a little bit wider. And otherwise, this would be a 400-page book. It's like three-something. But um, you start to get to where you forget things. I mean, by the time it takes you to write, I mean, do you write a, a rough draft and then go back and polish? No, I don't either. See, some people, they, they have this thing called a don't-look-down draft, and they just type. And that, those are usually serious character-driven people but they, they they do a real rough draft and it has like dialogue and action it doesn't have any description it doesn't have um, any anything that they would have to stop and look up like I just had to stop and look up whether a cap on the back of some stupid Toyota Tacoma truck had how the, it unlocked I had to do that but I can't go past those parts I have to stop and I have to look it up I can't like do a don't look down draft so by the time you get to the end you've got almost a perfect draft but, you, you know, it's a lot of time has passed so that you have to have that, that document that tells you, you know, what people look like. And, you know, I also don't want my character to wear the same outfit twice in my books. And, you know, I, you know, I have to, like... I never do clothes. You don't mention the clothes? In one, in, in my second book, I talked about her clothes only because she was filthy rich. And in her predicament, she had gotten so she did not care about the way she looked and the 
only time I mentioned her clothes was when she noticed that she'd been wearing the same pair of slacks for three days and they had coffee stains on them. I, I don't do clothes. It's too hard. <laughs> See, I, I do clothes. Mine are erotic romances. And they're erotic romances. And then on top of that, they're like comic romantic suspense, comic romantic mystery, whatever's on top of that. But it, you always know if you buy one of my books, there's going to be tons of sex scenes because I love sex scenes. <laughs> so you can't have a sex scene unless you describe what's being taken off. So I have to have clothes. <laughs> so, you want to read that? Oh, gosh. Well, yeah. I was no going to read. I was going to read. Ah, no, I haven't read that. You want a super kinky one? Now, see, he came right. back. He was getting ready to leave, and you <laughs> just got him back here. So. Well, what happens is at the very beginning, I'll tell you, the very beginning of the book, this um, dominatrix goes to the DEA Virginia office. This is a, the sex club. is called the Executive Branch, capital X, Executive Branch. And um, it's... Everybody, it's like a 25,000 a year to belong, I think. So it's like really wealthy, really powerful people belong to this. So this woman finds out that that uh, this person she knew was a D.C. cop had been murdered, looking into, she had told him, I think they're smuggling drugs. So he looked into it and they killed him. And so she didn't want to go to the D.C. cops because she knew some D.C. cops high up were actually going to the executive branch. So she went out into Virginia and went to the DEA um, office. And so it starts with her telling, you know, what's going on and why she's there and that they're, they're smuggling drugs. They're smuggling cocaine in um, the battery compartments of the vibrators is what they're doing. <laughs> so there's all these shipments of, of sex toys that are coming into the club and then leaving again, going to different places. So the DEA not doesn't just want to bust the club. They want to know where they're coming from, where they're going to. So they put this um, this woman who is um, a DEA agent, and she's very ambitious, and she's trying to get promoted, but she's not really great in bed, she thinks. And so she is really upset that she's been given this job to be a dominatrix. Even though she's built, she's not real comfortable with wearing, you know, corsets and merry widows and stuff like that. So... Um, <coughs> The beginning is when she finds out that she's got to go do this. But the second, the third chapter is the sexiest chapter. Um, Come on, you're just wasting time. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So well, the second chapter, she gets trained, and that's when she meets two other dominatrixes. And all three dominatrixes that work there are actually students at, in, in college. And one, one's a, trained to be a dentist because she likes to cause pain. <laughs> One's a physical therapist for the same reason. And then, I think, I forget what the other one is. But anyway. There's a whole new meaning to working your way through college. I know. <laughs> so, um, okay. So she, uh, maybe I should, uh, I feel this is really bad. A friend of mine um, in, in um, Chicago is going to, to do a reading of all these different sex scenes during National Ma Masturbation Month. And she's doing something called um, Wank Week. I, I don't <laughs> I don't think I want to be part of that. She's she's gonna wear a blonde wig and has and, and has a bed. She's gonna put the bed in a sex toy shop and read out loud from her books. Are you gonna read out loud from your book? No. <laughs> okay. Okay. So now it's it's um, Domino is the name of the woman. That's her nickname. That is the dominatrix. And since her um, dominatrixes are sometimes called doms, so it would be like 
dom domino, which sounded really stupid, or dom dom, which is, a, it sounds like a, a lollipop. Um, she took the, the name Mistress Bella. She's Italian. So now her very first appointment is going to be Dalton, who's the, um, the cop. She doesn't know he's a cop. He's there. He says, I think his um, file says he's in charge of um, some company because just like I said, 25000 to join this place. So everybody's pretty, you know, yeah. So anyway, so he goes into, he, he's taken into this room. He's left in the S&M room five, and she, there's a back door that has a one-way mirror. She can look in and see the guy and, and also, like, if they think there's a problem, they can push a button and one of the bouncers will come and stand outside and watch and make sure that nothing is going to happen to the girls that do this. So, okay. Should I do that? Cheesy <laughs> peasy. Okay, so she's now looking through the – She's Dalton is now inside this room, and she's outside looking in. Okay. <clears throat> this is embarrassing. You want to read this for me? <laughs> Just, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> Holy cannoli. Domino spit out her Italian grandmother's favorite curse when she saw who awaited her. From her spot outside the employee's entrance to S&M room 5, she observed her first client through the two-way mirror. The guy was huge. He looked like a refugee from the world wrestling entertainment, not some wimp who got his jollies being dominated. A nervous laugh escaped her. Heck, she'd need a stepladder to top this man. With trepidation, Dom watched the intimidating client stalk around the room, examining the different bondage machines and discipline instruments. He had to be close to 6'5", with the impressive shoulders and chest of a linebacker. There was an arrogance and overt maleness about this man that had been lacking in the clientele she witnessed as Tori's apprentice. Tori was the original dominatrix. Damn, the butterflies in Domino's stomach were now competing with sexual appreciation. She could count the number of lovers she'd had on one hand, okay, maybe three fingers, but she was a sucker for large, muscular men. Get a grip. If this man was here for some, as an S&M client, he couldn't be her type. Besides, she wasn't exactly free to walk up to him and say, I'm not really a dominatrix, you see, but your friendly neighborhood DEA agent. Would you like to do dinner sometime? So Dom ignored her instant attraction and took an objective look at the client. The man stopped in front of a cabinet holding the vibrators and other sexual paraphernalia. A daunting scowl darkened his face and made it difficult to determine if he was as attractive as Domino had first thought. The fleece-lined handcuffs in particular seemed to capture his attention. Now you know why I give a hand <laughs> as part of this. Okay. Um, he appeared to want to touch the items but kept his large hands curled into fists at his sides. Hmm, self-disciplined. In a few minutes, she'd take over that job. Right, she was supposed to dominate this hulking male. Suddenly, Baby Bob didn't seem so unappealing. Baby Bob's a guy that likes to be diapered. That's another scene. <laughs> Sorry. You don't, some of this stuff you don't see live. It's kind of happening off stage, if you know what I mean. Okay, concentrate. You can do this. Domino forced herself to start the process she'd been taught beginning with a clipboard the attendant had handed her. 
The client was a company president identified as Dalton C. An initial versus a last name was the club's way of protecting the not so innocent. According to the paperwork, the session was the man's first time at the club, so his specific needs had yet to be established. Apparently, Mr. C wanted a walk on the wild side. She glanced through the mirror again. The man who looked in his mid-30s was now studying the arm and leg restraints attached to the padded horse. Light eyes, possibly steely blue, stared out of a granite-jawed face that needed a shave. His crooked nose had seen a few punches in its day, she bet, and his full lips were unsmiling. Conservative, expensive clothes. Here we go to the clue. <laughs> a short sleeve shirt and khaki pants accommodated his build, but he'd skip socks with his loafers. A dichotomy, professional and rebel, from his toes to the reddish-brown hair that seemed too shaggy for corporate America. As she watched, Dalton C.'s perceptive eyes swept the room before focusing for several long beats on the two-way mirror. Dom froze. He couldn't see her, but she still held her breath. A shudder of something like recognition coursed through her. It's him. Logically, Domino knew she had never met the man, but her soul clamored to contradict her. She felt a pull that went deeper than physical attraction. I'll skip forward to some of the sexy stuff. Let's see. Okay, so she she figures, you know, she better, you know, shake it off and get down to business. This is her first time. So she says, adopting the confident stance and arrogant smile she practiced endlessly in her bathroom mirror, Mistress Bella opened the door and strutted into S&M room five. So now we go into Dalton's um, point of view. So we get to see her from his point of view. Damn, forgetting the submit, his submissive role, Dalton stared at the woman who'd stepped through the back door. Like a dark siren from a lewd dream, Mistress Bella was clad in metal-studded leather that screamed, don't fuck with me. Sorry. <laughs> his body ignored the warning, however, and thrummed with sexual interest. She was obscenely fascinating. Her outfit's strategically placed cutouts revealed glimpses of her hips and waist, while the cone-shaped cups pulled her full breasts high. The way the supple black cowhide caressed her curves made Dalton wonder if he harbored a previously unrecognized leather fetish. Captivated, he let his eyes travel over her killer body. No anorexic weight, this was a woman built for nights of rough and raw sex. In her mile-high sandals, she was close to six feet tall. Her endless legs were enclosed in dark stockings that stopped mid-thigh and clung there in defiance of gravity. Man, he loved long legs. I feel like I'm hogging the whole hour. Are you sure you don't want to read anymore? You want, okay, never mind. <laughs> She's looking at me like I'm crazy. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the smooth skin above the stockings led his gaze northward to the high-cut edges of her dominatrix gear, a merry widow, he remembered from his research. He couldn't see her ass yet, but he bet his last dollar it was round and firm, a nice handful for the right man. The leather corset cinched her waist, molding her body as it traveled upward to support and separate that mouth-watering rack. I know. It's, I, didn't, it's I, good. I know, but it's, I, good. it's embarrassing. Um, <laughs> okay, so we can skip around. Let's see. Okay, so the bottom line is he's supposed to be um, submissive, and as a submissive guy, he would not be 
so obviously checking her out. And, you know, he would be, have like rounded shoulders and be all wimpy and stuff. So he's totally forgotten to do any of these things. So um, finally he reaches his, scoping her out, reaches her face. And he says, above those sinfully full lips, a black leather mask covered the upper portion of her face. Cat-eye cutouts framed her thick, lashed eyes, dark, intense eyes that stared insolently into his. A shiver of dread joined the anticipation coursing through Dalton. Present yourself, slave. Her sharp command snapped like a whip across his senses, and she pointed to the floor with a riding crop on her right hand. Shit. On the verge of blowing his cover, Dalton racked his sex-fogged brain for the correct response. He'd spent the last two nights researching the scene, and now, to revenge his dead partner, he had to overcome his inherent revulsion of kowtowing to anyone. Dropping his eyes and rounding his shoulders and trying not to laugh at the absurdity of it all, Dalton moved forward. When he was several feet from the woman, he dropped to his knees in front of her. You're either a novice or a glutton for punishment. Mistress Bella's husky voice held a hint of amusement, but Dalton thought it wise to remain silent. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw her raise the crop and brace for a blow. Instead, she slid the looped tip of the whip under his chin and lifted his head to meet her gaze. Is this your first time, she asked. Instead of following his initial impulse and ripping the crop from her hand, Dalton forced himself to think meek. Yes. Yes what? Yes, Mistress Bella. She nodded, and with an internal smirk, Dalton congratulated himself for coming up with the right answer. His mental high-five was cut short by his next, her next words. I do love breaking in a virgin. She chuckled low at the startled look on his face. There are rules to this game, slave, and unpleasant consequences, as you will learn, for breaking them. That's enough. That's enough. I can't read any more of this. <laughs> Well, she makes him strip down. So, if 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 you write romance, there's what the ten levels of of intimacy. intimacy yeah. There's ten levels of intimacy, and they're like, was eye to eye, eye to mouth. I, I forget because it's like kiss, touching, hand to arm, hand to shoulder, kissing. I mean, there's like these levels, and at least. For Americans, these are like the levels, normal level that a relationship would take. And the very last one is having sex with someone, seeing them naked. Well, she jumps all those. And in a minute, he has to strip down. So she's totally dressed and he's got no clothes on. That's and intimidating. Yeah, so it's, it's a little bit different than your ordinary meeting. And they, they get to, they end up having three sessions together. And, and each time she's... She does less to him or tries to come up with something nice because she doesn't want to hurt this guy. She thinks he's really nice, but she thinks he's paying to be hurt. And so the last time she uses a feather on him, he's like incredibly ticklish, but she doesn't know this and would rather probably get beat up than <laughs> to be tickled. But she, she, So she thinks she's being really nice to him. and She, does, she drips wax on him. She does all sorts of insane things. So, so we're just going to have to read it. Yes, exactly. yes, that's the point. It's available through um, Amazon. Yours is too, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> There's what? <laughs> well, well, you know, get your get your acquisitions librarian name to us. And yeah, because well, it's inscribed. You might want to. 
Yeah, you gave her one. She's a piece. I didn't even think of that. See, she's a professional. She has a small press herself. So you know these things. You're smart. Well, it's just, I mean, it was very nice to be invited. And, uh, you know, you can have a bookmark, too, if you'd like. <laughs> yes, and her book is um, was a finalist for an award this year. and Last year. Last year? Yeah. yeah. Last year. So she's, yeah. she's pretty cool. Any questions? You have, well, to repeat the, you have to repeat the question. Huh? You repeat the question because this is omnicorrect. How do you know when to, how do you know what, how to start a book? Is that the question? Where to start when it's done? Well, sometimes it's, it feels like it's never done. I'm on the fourth draft of my current novel, which I've thrown away twice. You you know, it is, it's, you do not just sit down and whip out a book. Um, because if you let it sit for a while, when you go back to it, you see the holes. You see, and then you see things like, oh, I should have done this. Wouldn't it be cool if this happened? And uh, that's, that's really the process. And that's why it takes, it takes me three years to finish a book to where I will, I, I would be happy to see it in print. Um, the one I'm working on now, it's another one of those things that nailed me, and I couldn't let it go, and I kept trying to ignore it, and I couldn't. It was something that happened in 2003 down in Kentucky to uh, five champion, world champion saddlebreds. Someone attacked them and maimed them so horribly that three of them were, had to be destroyed, and they never found the guy. And I, it's it's a similar story. It's not Saddlebrads, and it's and, and they also never figured out what they used to attack these horses. So in my story, I had to come up with a motive. I had to come up with a method, and then of course I had to catch the guy. I mean, I and that's the sad thing about this this incident down in Kentucky. I I, I was visiting with a, a big equine clinic down there in Lexington um, in November, and I was talking to the gal who, who was vetting out one of the sections in the book that had to do with her clinic, and she said, I do hope you're going to catch the guy in your book. I said, oh, absolutely. She said, I, you know, they, they never did figure out who did it or why. So that's, it's a very long process. When you decide to be a writer, it's because you have to. It's not something you think, oh, well, this would be fun, because it's not fun, is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's not fun when you get into it and you, you want so desperately for it to be right. That's because you're, that's because you're character driven. Yeah. If you're plot driven, it's not as angsty, I don't yeah. think, to write. Yeah. But um, usually what they say is that you start a book, you get about four or five chapters in, and then you throw away the first three chapters. Because you want to start with action, so like, the, and you want to start with a hook. So like, my book starts with the phrase. If I can get to it. Um, ah, there it is. Men pay me to dominate them. So it starts with the interview of the dominatrix, and you know, one of the 
things that a lot of beginner authors do is they put a lot of backstory. They explain why everybody's where they are and what happened for the last 10 years before they got here. Put that all in the first couple chapters, and it's a real yawn, so you don't want to do that. So <clears throat> we have a new member, won't mention his name, oh. <laughs> in our chapter, who is like in the 70s, and he has written a lot of nonfiction. And, you know, I, I've supported myself as a, as a writer my whole life. I was a corporate script writer and advertising copywriter. So I, I was as arrogant as he was, only it was six years ago. And I came in thinking, oh, I can write, I can write, I can write a book. Well, it's not at all the same. There's a ton to, to learn. And what he does, and I think a lot of authors do, is that he tells the story, as if he's sitting there talking to you, and then she walked into the room. And then, but, but if you're a good writer and you're character-driven especially, then you're in that person's head, and it's, it's like there's I, – I had learned – in fact, I learned just two years ago what deep POV was, <laughs> where you're deeply into that person's point of view, and there's something called author intrusion, which he – this guy does – oh, I hate – I hate – critiquing with him, but he does this all the time, and the reason I hate critiquing with him is because he, th he thinks he's right. If he, you know, if, he, if, if he was just happy that someone was pointing out where he was wrong, it would be okay, yeah, but yeah. he thinks he's right. But anyway, um, if you say she thought, she realized, she decided, I mean, you're basically telling the story. That's she the knew. author. She knew. Yeah. These are all author comments. These aren't the person, but if, if you have the person thinking, God, I better go to the store instead of she decided to go to the store. Yeah, yeah. That's the difference between deep POV and author intrusion. And so I had to learn that because I'm not a character-driven person. But I just say, okay, what would be really funny? So, like, I have a Chinese crested dog. He's 15 pounds, and he's a DEA drug-sniffing dog in the book. And so he's undercover, too. <laughs> so, you know, she brings him to work, and he looks like her pet, but he's not, and he goes and sniffs out the drugs and and so now he's my um, logo, and it's been incredibly successful. And I'm allergic to dogs, so I can't even own one. But this is my virtual pet. So I'm writing now a mystery series that's not published yet, and I had to go back and add a Chinese crested because people expect it now. It's part of my brand. You have to have an author brand. And um, so what I did was, in my mystery series, I thought, what can I do that would allow me to talk about sex, because I love talking about sex. And so I, I made the heroine as a sex therapist. And so the hero's a cop who's real meat and potatoes as far as sex is concerned. And um, so he's like really does not approve of what she does for a living. And um, the scenes where she is counseling people tend to be the comic relief between mm -hmm. the mystery scenes. So like she'll go in and this, these, this young couple, that they're newly married, and she's all pissed off because she found out that the name that he had named his penis, basically, was something his ex-girlfriend had named it. So she was all pissed off because she's been using that name, thinking it was his name for it, it was this other girl's name for it. So they were almost like on the you know, edge of divorce because of this. And so that's the type of scene I get to write in my new book. <laughs> I have one where two gay guys are all, you know, they're having problems because one of them's real romantic and one of them's more sexual, just like a female-male coupling, and you know, and, and there's a guy that's bisexual, and I get to write all that, all this stuff. Any specific <laughs> writing questions? I mean, just specific. How do you?
you do such and such other than um, how do you get ideas? How do you know when you're done? <laughs> that was uh, that's a good question because it's a big one. A fiction book? I think for me the easiest part is is the ideas and the things that pop into my head that I want to incorporate into it. The hardest part is just sitting down and getting it onto paper and having it flow. Um, timeline. Oh, timeline is horrible. Uh, my second draft of my current novel, when I, I finally said, you know, this it has, for one thing, it has four points of view, and it happens in the space of seven days. I had a day in there that had 47 hours. <laughs> and I didn't recognize it until I went, wait a minute, what time is it? So I got, I have a timeline program where I can put in each event with a time. I had 47 hours in this one day. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, those are the things that um, a newcomer will write a story and they'll think it's all ready and they'll send it off and then they don't understand, you know, because an editor is not going to take the time to say you have 47 hours on Saturday, you know, get real. Um, Timeline. So Timeline's serious. But don't you think that because editors used to take the time to do that, that people still think they're going to find an editor willing to put up with that? Oh, I don't know. I, yeah, I think, they, more, they don't I think most people just think that writing a book is no big deal. You just yeah. sit down and type. And, and, and for the most part, that's how you start. Yeah, the, the, the thing <laughs> that really helped me was having that dual document editing. Because I, I like I, I talked about the hero here. I did the description where he has a broken nose and needs a shave. Then I just copy and pasted it into the other, you know, opened the other document, just pasted it in there, went back, and and I have a timeline too, and I have a chapter breakdown too. And the nice thing about the chapter breakdown is that um, one of the things that a lot of beginners do is they hop from it's called head hopping. They go from one person's head to the other, back and forth, and it. And Nora Roberts can do it because she has like a huge following, and people would buy her even if she just copied the phone book and put it into it. <laughs> but but um, newbies, newbies are not allowed to do that. I mean, you have to know the rules to break them. You know, you can't go. Well, she got to do it. You know, they don't put up with whiners. So they, um, the thing is that some people, the purists, POV purists. I'm not a purist. They want one point of view per scene or per chapter. And I, I do that, I do one per scene unless it's a sex scene, and then I definitely have two. And I think Stephanie oh, Bond does that too. Yeah. I mean, I want to know what's going on in both their heads during a sex right. scene because it's such a big, climatic, no pun intended, scene. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> well, I do parallel plotting. I did it in this, and I'm doing it in the new one, which means that the main plot is going along, but the reader all, and in a thriller, the reader knows who done it. In a mystery, the reader is trying to find out who did it along with the detective or the, the whatever. But parallel plotting is where the other plots, I mean, you're reading about what's going on here, and then you have a break, and then you're finding out what's happening at the same time in all the other things, and then they all converge. So points of view, point of view in that is a lot easier because you are following different plots. Point of view is very hard in a single, single plot. And you know some some books like Chicklet and some mysteries they're all first person, and that I could never write first I can't person. Write. 
thinking. Yeah. And especially the sex scenes. Who wants to write a first-person sex scene? We have a friend that writes um, gay porn, basically. Oh, yeah. And um, it's interesting because you get into the pronouns in the sex scene, and everybody's a he. You know, yeah. he did this, he did this. Well, who's, which he is doing what now? Yeah. So the pronouns kind of throw you in those scenes. So there's, depending on what you're writing, there's individual challenges to your genre. <laughs> but that is really popular right now. So is that, is that it? Um, yeah. Fast. <laughs> we overstayed our welcome. Oh, no. <laughs> Anybody that didn't get a keychain, please come get a keychain. Or if they know somebody that needs a keychain real bad, they can take an extra. www.cofw.org. Org for org. And we are having a huge book signing in September, the night before our conference, with about 34 authors. September 28th? September 28th. Yeah, September 28th at the uh, University Plaza Hotel. And yep. it's going to be a biggie. So it's if you're, free. And it's free. The and if, books aren't. You know, if, but the, the people no, the books are. Aren't and you can come talk. You don't have to ever buy a book. I mean, yeah. people are so desperate at book signings for someone to talk to. You never have to buy a book. <laughs> never. Isn't that true? Yeah. I mean, you uh, just want people to come up and ask you something other than where's the bathroom. Right, right. That's, yeah. Mm -hmm. So definitely well, show up. Thanks to both of you yeah. for, Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for having it's us. It's wonderful to hear just enough to make us very curious. <laughs> Marcia, if you get your series published, I'd be happy to read. Oh, okay. So <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you very much. Thank you.